the Reconstructionist Radio Podcast Network presents The Roots of Reconstruction by Rusas John Rushduni Narrated by Shelby Luke Thank you for joining me this week in the reading of Roots of Reconstruction by Rusus John Rushduni. In lieu of the judgment of God across this nation, I appeal to you to listen, learn, and live as the Holy Spirit guides you in the truth of the Word of God. The words and prompting of fallible men do not hold a candle to the truth of Scripture, and the truth of Scripture will only be words to our ears unless we exhort, establish, and exercise these infallible words in every area of thought and life. Calcine Report number 117, May 1975. One of the basic premises of Christian culture as taught and developed very early by the church is the insistence that the world and all men therein are under God's law. Power and authority are derived from God's law, and this is true of every area of life, the family, church, state, school, and all vocations. As a result, a fundamental principle of the medieval period was the doctrine that the king and all others in authority must rule according to law, God's law. The two common backward look of medieval philosophers and their readiness to follow Greek and Roman thinkers led to the adoption of a Roman premise common also to the Germanic tribes and to all pagan antiquity that, quote, necessity knows no law, unquote. The forms of this proverb vary. Some read, instead of necessity, quote, the public, unquote, or, quote, common utility, unquote, quote, public welfare, unquote, quote, emergency, unquote, or, quote, reasons of state, unquote. But the idea in all is the same. Necessity became the governing public principle so that, as Post has pointed out, it came to mean, quote, necessity knows no private law, unquote. Gaines Post, Studies in Medieval Legal Thought, Public and the State, 1100 through 1322, pages 8, double F, 22, Princeton, New Jersey, Princeton University Press, 1964. In time, this came to mean that God's law was a private concern of religious man, and thus it could be overruled by the state. Instead of God's law as the higher and ultimate law, necessity came to be the new higher and ultimate law. Even churchmen began to see necessity as the higher law, and one result was the justification of theft in cases of necessity, in example, to forestall hunger in some cases, or to alleviate extreme distress. Man's necessity was given priority over God's requirements, a logical result of the return to the humanism of antiquity and of the barbarian kingdoms. The belief that, quote, necessity knows no law, unquote, meant the breakdown of, quote, private, unquote, law as well and thus of morality, because a higher law always supplants and negates all lower law. 
One result was a growing moral anarchism and the brutalization of the law, the courts, and public life, culminating in the Renaissance. The individual began to govern his own life in terms of his own priorities or necessities, and the more widely men came to believe that, quote, necessity knows no law, unquote, the more widely they defined necessity. Every desire and whim of man began to pass for necessity and thus was exempt from the governance of law. The state was the biggest gainer from this new principle. Having used the idea of necessity to increase its power, the state began to define itself as the realm of necessity and therefore beyond all law. The state thus began to claim jurisdiction over every area of life, including the church. Although the Reformation and Counter-Reformation for a time pushed back the pagan principle of necessity, it soon returned with the Enlightenment, and since then has become the governing principle of virtually all civil governments. Reasons of state or necessities are deemed sufficient to justify all policies and courses of action. In terms of the state as the necessary principle of life and law, the state has taken over education and it is beginning to look towards more and more control of the churches. The state, claiming to be the new god of creation, claims jurisdiction over every area of life. State law is held to govern all of life, but the state is itself under no higher law. The state cannot be neutral towards God. When it denies God's law as binding over itself, it affirms thereby that the law of the state is ultimate and binding over all things and bound by none. Its basic premise, then, is that the world is under the state's law, not God's. The end result of that premise, that, quote, necessity knows no law, unquote, is total tyranny and terror under a totalitarian state determined to permit no independent existence to any man or institution. Such a consequence cannot be prevented merely by fighting totalitarianism, but only by undercutting its basic premise. The priority of God and His law must be asserted, maintained, and acknowledged in faith and life. The, quote, death of God, unquote, school of thought was a logical result of the belief that necessity can be separated from God and His law. By declaring that, quote, necessity knows no law, unquote, Men, in effect, declare that God is dead and man reigns. By affirming and applying the principle that the only necessity is God and His law, men, in effect, declare that the totalitarian state is dead and God reigns. Fear and hatred for and opposition to the totalitarian state are ineffectual and generally futile as long as men see it as the necessary order. They cannot, by hatred, nullify its power. Only as they by faith recognize the absolute necessity of God's law and the absolute sovereignty of God Himself will they cease, whether in love or in hate, to bow before that modern bell, the sovereign state. Until then, men are impotent, and they continue to bow before the gigantic eunuch, the sovereign state, which claims all potency but can only kill never make alive. Only then can men declare, quote, The Lord reigneth, let the earth rejoice, let the multitude of isles be glad thereof, unquote. 
Psalms 97.1. Calcine Report number 118, June 1975. The old Christian doctrines of estate and calling were often violated in earlier centuries, but their importance was nevertheless very great. Even in violating them, men knew that their office or position and their calling made certain duties mandatory and that both God and man expected their fulfillment from them. The common acceptance of the doctrines of estate and calling compelled men to assess themselves and other men in terms of a God-centered standard. With humanism, a steady decline and then a disappearance of the ideas of estate and calling began. How extensive the loss is will appear in the fact that the once common saying, quote, act your age, unquote, a relic of the idea of the dignity of a state, is now almost gone. Thus I have a picture of a woman in her 80s sunbathing in a flimsy bikini at Nice, France, a fitting symbol of the disappearance of the old doctrine. People who try to act their age are now often ridiculed because, quote, you're only as old as you feel, unquote, or pretend you feel. The mind, not objective reality such as age, God's law, and other people, now governs. With the loss of all strong and theological ideas of a state and calling, men now live for themselves and they make their own needs and whims their end or goal. The purpose of life is sought in man's own desires, not in God's sovereign purpose and order. This raises a very significant fact. The criminal is the man who lives for himself makes his wishes and needs his law, and disregards the law structure of God and man. He seeks his purpose and goal within himself, in his own fallen nature, not outside himself or in reference to anything higher than himself. Thus the man of today and the criminal are essentially in agreement on their philosophy of life. Each makes himself the measure of reality and the source of his own law or standards. What then separates the law-abiding citizen from the criminal? Both alike seek their own fulfillment without regard for God's law and order. Both are alike, man-centered to the core of their being. Their only essential difference is that the man of today tries to realize himself within the law, whereas the criminal operates outside the law. Both, however, have abandoned the idea of objective law and the sovereignty of God over all things. Law as something other than a convenience or their own desire is an exploded idea for both of them. As a result, the children and youth of today show that the distinction between the man of today and the criminal is being blurred. A U.S. Senate subcommittee has estimated in April 1975 that vandalism in state schools now cost about half a billion dollars a year. The murder of a hundred students and rape robbery, and assault on school premises are a part of an accelerating rate of school crime. As more than one teacher has reported to me of late, the line between a hoodlum and a state school pupil is becoming more and more vague and blurred. Of course, their elders are busy blurring the lines also. A UPI news item from Olympia, Washington reads, quote, Proposed legislation before the Washington House of Representatives to legalize prostitution provides that licenses be given only upon satisfactory proof 
that the applicant is of good moral character, unquote. Santa Maria, California, Times, Thursday, February 20th, 1975, page 11. Humanistic scientists who were earlier predicting a new paradise when man became, quote, liberated, unquote, from Christianity, are now busy predicting the end of the world and man with pompous solemnity and no sense of their own guilt. Having, quote, liberated, unquote, man from God's law, they are amazed at his supposed irrationalism, refusing to see it as the logic and reason of man-centered unbelief. Lauren Isley, in the April 1975 Science Digest, writes of man, quote, His mounting numbers and ideological fanaticism may force his disappearance into ice and darkness just as he arose from those same natural forces he has threatened to outwit, unquote. Men who have proclaimed the death of God have not realized that they thereby proclaim the death of man, of godless man. The judgment of the living God is clearly in evidence on them, and an age without God's law is an age of death, because the condition of life is law, God's law, Deuteronomy 28. The future is thus a very good one for those who are the redeemed in Christ and who, in terms of God's law, move in terms of recognition of their estate and calling. The rest will perish because with their every action, political, economic, educational, familial, and personal, they invite death. As wisdom declares from of old, quote, He that sinneth against me wrongeth his own soul. All they that hate me love death. Unquote. Proverbs 8.36 in terms of God's law, we have a plan of action for dominion over all things, a guide to knowing our state and calling, and the means of the fulfilling thereof. In terms of God's law, we live, not unto ourselves or for our own wishes, but in terms of His calling and purpose, knowing that only in this way can we ourselves be fulfilled. As our Lord declared, quote, Seek ye first the kingdom of God and His righteousness, and all these things shall be added unto you, unquote. Matthew 6.33 He having made us can alone be our fulfillment. The necessary condition of our life is the sovereign God. Without Him, we have no estate and calling, and finally, no life, society, or culture. In the graveyard, there is no estate and calling. Calcedon Report Number 119, July 1975. Marxism succeeded in spite of Karl Marx. A man of remarkable stupidity, he had an annual income of a very well-to-do gentleman, but he consistently lost a large portion of it on get-rich-quick schemes. His economic and political ideas were as bad as his investments. Incidentally, one of his absurd ideas for instant revolution in 1849 is still with us, now used by unknowing conservatives. The tax revolt. Marxism succeeded because it ceased to be merely a politico-economic theory and became a religious faith. It offered a total faith, an explanation for all of life, and it succeeded because the world was busy becoming relativistic and pragmatic and uninterested in truth. Theologians became less and less concerned with God and more and more pragmatic and existential. Meanwhile, Marxist theologians who call themselves theoreticians 
have provided a total philosophy of life for a world hungry for a faith. Khrushchev saw the weakness of the purely pragmatic interest of the West. True, he recognized, quote, theory must be tied to life. Theory, my friends, is gray, but the eternal tree of life is evergreen, unquote. However, he pointed out, practice without theory is, quote, doomed to wander in the dark, unquote. This was his ground for believing, quote, we will bury you, unquote. Western man moved purely in terms of self-interest and practical concerns, not in terms of principle or faith. While Khrushchev did not see any strength in the Christian West, he saw the weakness of the humanistic West clearly. Its pragmatism and its contempt of principles ran deep. Palmerston, Bismarck, and others had governed in terms of it. In the U.S., it was adopted tardily and with fervor by President Theodore Roosevelt, whose unprincipled foreign policy was based on the premise, quote, speak softly and carry a big stick, unquote. Since World War II, the U.S. has apparently, as Griffith noted, rephrased Roosevelt's maxim into, quote, speak loudly and carry a big wallet, unquote. Thomas Griffith, The Waste High Culture, page 114, New York, Harper, 1959. The belief that dollars will save the world is now perishing in an international glut of euro dollars. Our Lord declared, quote, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceedeth out of the mouth of God, unquote. Matthew 4, 4. The heart of modern humanistic politics is the belief that man can live by bread alone that the religious issues and God himself are irrelevant, and that bread and security are alone essential. The Marxists are in agreement, but they have made the, quote, bread alone, unquote, idea into a world and life, philosophy and faith. They are thus more consistent in their materialism, and as a result more successful to a degree. Everywhere, however, humanism is collapsing. Marxism promises bread and delivers hunger. Inflation in the Marxist world has led to unrest and riots. The West gives bread, but with it spiritual hunger, and Western man is also discontented and rebellious. Man cannot live by bread alone, and every attempt to reduce man to a bread-consuming animal, to an economic creature, is doomed to fail. Man is a religious creature, inescapably so, created in the image of God, and having no peace apart from the service of the Lord. Sooner or later, every society which denies man's essentially religious being and his theological estate and calling is doomed to collapse. The modern humanistic state, both Marxist and democratic, denies its own theological estate and calling, and it denies the theological estate and calling of man. It is thus making itself more and more irrelevant to God and to man, more and more irrelevant to life's basic problems. In a time of crisis, irrelevant institutions, no matter how powerful outwardly, begin to crumble because they are unable to cope with life's basic problems. Even more, they have become the problem. The medieval order collapsed when the church became the problem instead of a channel for the answer. The modern order, the state, everywhere is creaking and faltering with decay, and it too has become the problem, not a channel for answers. As a result, the modern state and its world are headed for dissolution. This, then, is a time of decay and dissolution, but also a time of reconstruction.
Only as men regain a theological sense of a state and calling will they regain a command of their world and its problems, because they will then, under God, have a command of themselves. Under God, the good life does mean material progress, but when it is reduced to that, it ceases to be a good life and becomes frustration and emptiness. Because man cannot live by bread alone, the destruction of all, quote, bread-only, unquote, societies is inescapable. And because the world is God's creation and totally governed by His word and law, the triumph of God's purposes is also inevitable. One meaning of the Lord's Supper is that Christ, our Passover, having been sacrificed for our redemption, is now our Lord who feeds our total being. As we walk in faith and obedience, all the material things which men seek after are given to us. Quote, seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things shall be added unto you. Unquote. Matthew 6.33 This requires more than merely saying, Lord, Lord. It means knowing our estate and calling in him and under him. Thank you for joining me this week in the reading of Roots of Reconstruction by Bruce's John Rushman. Lord willing, we will be reading again next week. Until then, may God bless your endeavors as you serve the one and only King Jesus. It was the blood of Jesus, the perfect sacrifice, the love
the Reconstructionist Radio Podcast Network brings to you a complete lineup of podcasts where you will hear practical and tactical theology. Our desire is not simply that you consume our shows, but that you also live out your faith in every area of life. We can talk all day long about these things, but if we fail to put them into practice, then we fail as ambassadors of Jesus Christ, our King. Subscribe now to your favorite Reconstructionist Radio Podcast Network shows, or you can subscribe to the Reconstructionist Radio Master Feed, where all of the content we produce, including the audiobooks and audio articles, will pop up as soon as they are available. And don't forget to visit ReconstructionistRadio.com to volunteer as a narrator or to partner with this ministry financially. May the Holy Spirit stir you into action for Christ and His kingdom.